This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. For this episode of the Craft Beer Ring Podcast, I'm out in Downers Grove, Illinois. Um, it's Sunday morning. Uh, Fobab was yesterday, recovering from that with some hair of the dog, some Pilsner in front of me. Um, and joining me for this episode is Tom Beckman, co-founder of Goldfinger Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you very much. Excited to be on. It's, uh, yeah, you know, this, this awesome lager renaissance here in uh, Chicago. And it's interestingly, so for, for folks that have, uh, you know, read our best in beer issue, uh, which will be out by the time we're actually recording this before it's out, but it will be out by the time people listen to this. Uh, for those that have read our best in beer issue, um, Goldfinger, our readers tend to like you guys. They like you a lot. They, uh, you know, the, the Chicago land crew uh, uh, showed up and voted in a heavy way in our reader survey. And so you will find Goldfinger um, both on the list of favorite small breweries and their list of uh, favorite lager breweries. Very high up there on their list of favorite lager breweries. Wow. So um, anyway, I wouldn't want to spoil the surprise for you. <laughs> That's um, great to but hear. But everyone, everyone listening to this will know by the time it comes out. That, that got me thinking we should have a conversation about the way that you brew lager. Um, and got me out here to Downers Grove on a train this morning before I fly back home later today. Uh, anyway, we're going to talk about lager brewing. We're going to talk, uh, you know, for those of you who read our lager issue earlier this year, um, Goldfinger scored a 93 with their pills, and there's lots of Nader. Doppelbach scored a 94. Our judges are uh, 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 they're getting on well with the beers that you've been sending to us. And so uh, we're going to talk about how you brew pale lager. We're going to talk about uh, you know how that expresses itself um, through some of the kind of Polish hopped expressions of, of uh, pale lager that you make. And we're also going to talk about the, the Zoigel project that uh, that you've launched, uh, which is a really cool one. Um, love this Zoigel tradition, and uh, we can talk more about that later on. We're going to we're going to dive into all of that, but first, G and D Chillers, the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, are proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past thirty years. G and D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with twenty four seven service and support. If you want to maximize efficiency in your chiller? G and D's micro channel condensers are designed for less power draw. Their lighter weight and more compact design uses up to 70% less refrigerant, which means a lower GWP and lower operating costs. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is brought to you by our friends at BSG who invite you to experience one of the newest hops from their Hop Solutions line, HS Grove. Developed for hop-forward beer styles, HS Grove boasts incredible biotransformation qualities, giving you the power to transform your next IPA into a stone fruit powerhouse. Choose HS Grove for West Coast IPA, New England IPA, Double IPA, American Pale Ale, or any beer style where delicious fresh fruit aromatics are desired. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And is your brewery making its own ciders, seltzers, and other beverages beyond beer? If you need a central source for fruit flavor, Old Orchard has you covered. Old Orchard supplies flavored craft juice concentrate blends to beverage brands for the production of beer, cider, seltzer, wine, spirits, kombucha, and more. Flavor your lineup and streamline your sourcing by heading on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. 
Tom, I can't wait to let you talk. Uh, my after all day of Fobab yesterday, my my voice is going. I'm I'm holding on here, just <laughs> barely. So why don't you when you know the way we normally start off here? Like, you know, give us your your background in history. What uh, what was your path through brewing, uh, and then ultimately what led you to create a lager focused brewery uh, right here in Downers Grove? So uh, started home brewing with my brother, who is one of uh, the partners in Goldfinger. Um, we were living in downtown Chicago at the time, super into cooking from scratch. And we were also really into craft beer at the time. And uh, I started, uh, we started with like a, a kit to, to make this porter because I was really into porters at the time. And uh, it was so exciting to brew our first beer from scratch. But my goodness, was it terrible in hindsight, like did not pan out the way we wanted it to. But um, I just immediately started doing as controlled experiments as I could, given our stovetop system at the time, but we were doing all grain brewing right from the beginning. And um, right around that time, we also had kind of rediscovered our connection to brewing historically. Uh, we There was a uh, essentially an estranged side of my family that we lost touch with just because they were in a region of Europe that had been conquered uh, in Poland specifically. Um, so pre-World War One, it turns out I have lineage in, in brewing. Um, my ancestors, the Goldfingers, were brewers and brewing equipment manufacturers and also hops dealers in... Um, Czechia and in Poland. Uh, they had a nice brew pub in Krakow and uh, one of their claims to fame was that they were the official welcome beer for Kaiser Wilhelm's visit to Poland for the first visit. So uh, they were they were producing a significant amount of beer at the time and it was at that point my love for brewing at home that I felt that it was just running in my blood and I set out to revive the, the old family tradition um, but I realized I wasn't going to be able to achieve that just doing small one-gallon batches at a time. Um, so I ended up enrolling in the uh, Master Brewers program with Siebel and Domans in, uh, in Munich. Um, once I graduated, I started working at Lagunitas Brewing Company as a brewer, uh, making a ton of IPA. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Uh, which is, is funny because most of the brewers were just so excited every time we got a chance to brew a Pilsner as opposed to an IPA. Um, and uh, I moved on from Lagunitas to work in the brew pub atmosphere. Uh, I was working for Emmett's Brewing Company, which is a, a chain of uh, brew pubs in Chicagoland that's been around since the late 90s. Um, so I had my I cut my teeth on some really old equipment, falling apart equipment <laughs> on a 15-barrel system sure. in this brew pub atmosphere. But it was great because uh, it was all manual. I got to brew all sorts of different styles. Um, but throughout all of this, lager has been kind of the pre my preference in drinking. And um, the fact that the Goldfingers were growing their brewery right at the time that lager yeast had been isolated and had taken overtaken Europe. Um, it was kind of a combination of what I love to drink and uh, what we believe our ancestors were likely brewing at the time 
that led me down the path of opening a lager only brewery. Sure. Sure. So, um, what is it? What is the brewery? Like you come up with this idea and you want to focus on lager. What did that mean for starting this brewery? I mean, this is a tight focus, um, yeah. but it certainly meant that, uh, you know, you needed to make something that was going to be noteworthy and also build a brewery that could actually make those beers the way you wanted to make them. Sure. Yeah. I mean, on so many levels, it's a risk from the production of it, uh, from the time it takes to produce. And then of course, what was popular at the time or what continues to be the most popular craft beer, uh, which is not lager. Um, (laughs) but, uh, it was where my passion was. And I knew that if we were going to do this, we had to do, we had to go all in and go all in the right way. And that began with having a very clear vision of what our production setup is going to be like, what is the brew house going to contain? How are we going to, um, figure out what we do on the on the primary fermentation side versus the lagering side. What are our SOPs on lagering? And of course, those have changed over the last three years uh, in certain areas. But generally speaking, the infrastructure was the first consideration of how are we going to achieve this this lager uh, lager only focus. Um, I found out very quickly, literally like the first day we opened that. I had underestimated the need for tanks for lagering because <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, it wasn't like, oh, it looks like people are just slamming our original lager, which is our Hellas. I should just brew a quick batch of that. It was like, uh-oh, well, two months from now, I'm going to have another <laughs> batch. So um, we've gotten it wrong many times, and uh, I'm sure we'll continue to get it wrong in terms of infrastructure and SOPs. Uh, for, for a good while, but we've learned a lot and we continue to adjust to be able to make the same quality of beer and actually improve the quality of it uh, without compromising our, our process and what we set out to achieve. Sure, sure. Well, let's let's talk about the basic structure. You, you do decoct some of your beers. Um, you ferment uh, both in cylindroconical vessels as well and then lager in horizontal tanks. Just talk about some of the the basic structure of your approach to brewing lager. Sure. So right now we have a uh, three vessel brew house, a mash mixer, which is steam jacketed, which will allow us to step mash as well as just control, control any kind of mash. We're using it as our cereal cooker for right now um, because we use corn grits for our Mexican lager. Uh, Eventually we're, we're actually expanding our production a little bit. So we're going to be, adding an additional vessel that'll allow us to do decoction mashes and uh, cereal mashes in a separate vessel because we're currently doing it in one of the three vessels on our brew house. So that's creating a bottleneck for growth. Um, Can't be boiling if you need to also be decocting. (laughs) Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we are, we are decocting our Hellas. It's a single decoction. Um, Our Vienna lager is a double decoction. And uh, so we have all the piping necessary on our brew house to achieve that move mash back and forth. Um, we also chose to aerate with a sterile air as opposed to um, straight oxygen. So we have a, a whole setup of drying. We basically just have an air compressor, but we go through a series of filters and dryers to get it to a food grade uh, dryness and then sterile filter right before our heat exchanger. 
Um, the whole point of that being, well, that's how, well, Germans typically um, don't use oxygen because uh, it's not technically Reinheitsgebot. Um, they have to use sterile air because sterile air is readily available. Um, uh, pure oxygen would be considered an additional ingredient. Mm. Um, but also because what I learned at, uh, in the Master Brewers program is there is some data to suggest that by aerating with um, sterile air, which is about 20% oxygen, you're not stressing the yeast out, whereas you could be stressing the yeast out um, in, if, you, if you exceed a certain amount of huh. oxygen in the aeration on its way to the, the fermenter. But of course, that only works if you're, if you're uh, knocking out very cold because the solubility of sterile air mm. is not quite as good as uh, pure oxygen. Right. So you have to be really cold. Um, and that was part of our infrastructure too. We wanted to do everything nice and cold from start to finish. So we have a, a cold liquor tank that'll let us get, get down to a nice cold knockout temperature, absorb the level of oxygen that how, we how want. How cold is cold there? We're knocking out at 7C okay. right now, um, down from 8C before. Uh, we cooled it off just a little bit. Uh, the, the whole idea uh, between that and how we separate yeast from the, the initial fermentation uh, and then lagering, all of that is geared towards doing it slowly and doing it gently and cold. Um, so beginning with knockout, make sure when, when that yeast is in contact for the first time with that wort, it eases in to its growth and fermentation keep fusel alcohols down, just kind of give the yeast on its own time, time to grow, to, to ferment the beer. Uh, we actually never exceed um, 9C. 9C is the mm. fermentation. We keep yeah. it there. We don't do warm diacetyl rests. We just go from 9 down to 8 uh, right before um, we are thinking of transferring and the way we determine if we're going to transfer is uh, what kind of carbonation we want in the finished product because we're doing natural carbonation with all our beers. So we'll run a force ferment test to tell us where this beer, this batch is going to terminate. And based on a calculation, usually bung the tank um, around 1, 1. 1.1 uh, Plato left before fermentation, drop the temperature down 1 degree, uh, over 24 hours, then another degree down to seven to help promote yeast collecting down into the cone. So that's why we decided we wanted to do primary on, on in the conical so right. that we could more easily harvest the yeast. So then we'll rack the beer off into a horizontal uh, at seven degrees, and we'll leave it at seven degrees for its diacetyl rest for about 10 days. Uh, once it passes VDK, then we drop down one degree every every day until we get to a negative one set point. We we can achieve sometimes negative one or at least zero degrees Celsius for lagering. Yeah, yeah, no, that extremely cold process the entire way. You know, the intention is to not stress the yeast and let it move slow. But obviously, time in a brewery is money. At the same time, you know you. You must have to, you know, you're making some other adjustments in terms of yeast pitch, you know, to try to help that along so that, uh, you know, 
even though it's moving slow, that you're not going to debilitate your yeast in that process? Yeah, um, I think, and that's, a, that's something that we continue to tweak and run some experiments on what is our optimal pitch rate, but typically we, we err on the side of a little bit more yeast yeah. just to make up for that. Um, most of the stuff we're doing is not stressing the yeast out, but the fact that we're naturally carbonating, of course, CO2 is toxic sure, to the sure. yeast. So there is a little bit of stress, but what, what we like out of that is that there's, I'm going to say a dirty word in lager brewing, but there's semester production <sighs> that's created uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh, in a good way. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we're, we're, when I say we're running experiments, we're trying to figure out, um, essentially what we can get away with in terms of amount of yeast that we're using. Uh, there've been a couple of batches that we felt that there's almost too much yeast character, uh, maybe as a result of putting not so strong yeast in or too much of it. So we're, that's that's one of a few experiments we're running right now, but uh, generally speaking, we've we've kept the same kind of SOP for yeast pitching, which is just pitch more. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> well, I want to talk to you about like clearing VDKs without uh, a diacetyl rest. Before we do that, ProBrew is excited to announce that they are currently featuring short lead times between two and four weeks for their in-stock ProFill rotary can fillers. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, fill out their contact form on www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. Also, oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers? Good thing. Omega designed thialized yeast for just that reason. Thylized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. And wait, there's more. Omega Yeast makes yeast to order with a consistent one-week lead time, ensuring peak freshness and reliability. So let's talk about that, Tom. Do you, you know, in terms of clearing VDKs, do you uh, then leave that for an extended time? Um, yeah. Yeah. Usually time is the other solution. If time is the yeah. solution. Yeah. As long as you're not going too cold. Um, otherwise you're in Czech territory there. <laughs> too cold, too quickly, I right, should say. Right. Um, there's definitely diacetyl being cleaned up at seven degrees. You could even go colder, um, mm. but it is time. So what would potentially take 24 to 48 hours takes 10 days. Uh, but it's not the only thing that's happening over the course of those 10 days. So it's not like we're losing all this time. I mean, ultimately we're, we're lagering these beers on average for in the lagering tank for six weeks to six months in the case of our Oktoberfest. So, um, there's not, there's not a major rush. Uh, so in that VDK rest, it's, it's just kind of starting off the second chapter of the life of that beer, which is, post-fermentation there's still a little of fermentation occurring there because as i stated before we're transferring with a little bit of fermentation left so that we can um carbonate because we're not croisoning um but it's also embarking on this new chapter where things are moving slowly but cool and flavors are starting to meld some kind of undesired flavor compounds created during fermentation are starting to be reconsumed by the yeast and everything is sort of 
softening and bodies being created. Some aroma compounds are being kind of interacted with the ethanol that was created. So it's just a, it's a nice long process that achieves many things at the same time. It just so happens that we call it our diacetyl rest because that's ultimately what's going to determine whether we can lower the tank temp set temperature. Um, and once we do, that's when we slowly drop it. So you move it at that point, you move it out of the CCV into a horizontal tank where it still continues to then carbonate, clean up VDK. And after about 10 days, you then drop it to lagering temperatures. Correct. Yep. Cool. That's- and then, you know, what, where do you logger at and how long does it then, what's the tank residency now, you know, in, yeah. the, in your lagering phase? For our Hellas and for, for our Hellas. And you don't transfer to another vessel after that VDK process. You're s- still leaving in the same way. Right now we don't. Uh, we will, um, with this expansion, we're putting our first bright tanks in just for packaging purposes. Uh, we will be filtering. Um, most of our clarity comes from the natural lagering time. But uh, we do, on certain beers, add some biofine to get the nice brilliant color or clarity. Uh, we'll be moving away from that and going toward filtering into a uh, bright tank with this expansion. Um, but yeah, we're, we're just uh, we're sitting in the tank for our Hellas about six weeks. Uh, the way we've determined the re- tank residency is really sensorically like does this does this taste where we want it to taste um and one thing that we learned (laughs) when we were determining this was that we were judging a lot of things based on the set temperature uh or based on the 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 you know pigtail on the tank let's taste this how does it smell taste um not even considering the fact that it's super cold at that point it's not even going to be at serving temperature so you know, things that were we thought were not coming out as much as we wanted it to were just a function of how cold that sample was. So um, we've we've dialed that in a little bit. I mean, it seems so obvious, but it wasn't at the time. Um, but um, yeah, our set temp is trying to be at negative one, so we're mm. trying to be sub zero, uh, so that uh, we can really kind of promote the the natural clarity uh, more than anything. That that's. That's what we're hoping for when we get super cold. Sure, sure. Loculation. Yeah. yeah um, talk to me about, you know, obviously you're using decoction for some of the beers and not other beers. Um, you know, what is some of your decision-making process around, um, you know, some of that technique, you know, when you do choose to use it and when you don't choose to use it? Yeah. Uh, so with our Hellas, we do a single decoction. Uh, the reason we do it single instead of double is um, – We've, we've never tried to do a double, but we've certainly done batches where there's n- no decoction and, and, uh, and then a single, uh, not on the commercial level. It was all kind of experimental batches right. leading up to this. But what we found was more than anything, the, um, the body that we were looking to achieve in our Hellas was uh, significantly different than an undecocted uh, batch. So that's how we decided to move forward with that because different in what way? Um, a little, a little rounder, but it's an interesting one with with the Hellas. It's it's round, but then dries. So the decoction's helping maybe create a little more fermentability, but the uh, Maillard reactions are also creating sort of a complex, maybe 
bolder initial body. And uh, when we think of Hellas, we think like nice malt sweetness on the front end and then, but still dry enough that, without being super hoppy so that you want to have another one. Yes. Yes. No. And it's funny because we've described it the same. This, uh, this is, I've had this conversation over this weekend uh, before, but I think that's the magic of that. That like, that's what makes lagers delicious, not the minimalism, but this idea that they change, you know, that, that they should, the you should get that malt and fullness in the initial sip because that just it hits those pleasure centers, right? You know, it's yes. like, oh, this this tastes great. And then it still has to finish dry, you know? Right. And so, um, you know, when we say things, you know, things are sweet, like, well, yeah, they're sweet at very first and then they dry. You know, yeah. like that's the, that's the secret to like really great drinkable lager that people want to keep drinking. And, you know, it's obviously the, the Czech magic where they, you know, drinkability, people know, you know, like that's. I think they were anyway. I, I think you're I right. I think yeah. that decoction act can play a, a strong role in, in building that. Yeah, and I I think when I try other Hellas, I wouldn't really categorize our Hellas as a Munich style because I think first and foremost it's a little bigger. It's 5.2 ABV, so um, it's it's slightly bigger. Um, but also, I feel like on the front end we might be for certain styles we might be um, or for certain iterations of Hellas we might be slightly sweeter but then we also have more hop character on the back end so i would think of ours more so in like the getting closer to czech border like eastern <laughs> bavaria let's say like where they're right, not afraid right. of using hops uh, the the munchners seem to be scared of hops lately so <laughs> um but anyway yeah that's why we decided uh on the decoction for the original with the vienna um that was a decision because we were going to have these pale lagers as our, our flagships, um, but I wanted to cover a more malt-forward spectrum. Now, I would categorize all our beers as malty beers, um, but malt in a different way. It interacts with the rest of the stuff differently. With our Vienna, I wanted it to be more of a noticeable, like, toasty malt character so that for those for the customers who want that, we had something to offer them. And I felt that... Um, doing a, deco a double decoction on that was going to allow us to achieve more of those flavors. Um, as a, as a result though, we're able to have a five and a half percent, um, Vienna lager that drinks like a really light Pilsner because we also weren't shy about how we hop it. Um, and we use Czech saws in it. So it's nice and spicy and fairly bitter. Um, as far as why we didn't do a decoction on pills and our Mexican well pills because we wanted that to be what we would call our more hop forward uh, lager so something where the the hops are really kind of what what shines without just being kind of a bitter light lager so we've just had one you'll notice there's still some malt body to it but but definitely more of a hop flavor and uh, a nice kind of drying hop bitterness on the end we felt that um, decocting that might have gotten in the way a little bit mm. it wasn't necessary the the malt that we're using is just so beautiful anyway uh we're step mashing that one to make sure that we're extracting exactly what we want but we didn't feel that a decoction was necessary on that and the mexican lager just because uh we're already doing a cereal mash on it um and that was the element that i would categorize there's always when i think of a recipe okay so there's 
for ingredients, but um, when we break down what the malt character is going to be like, what are we looking at achieving? And it could be everything from the actual malt flavor to even potentially some uh, interesting sort of, uh, I don't want to call it a string, sort of like uh, polyphenolic uh, function in the mouth. Like, is there is there potentially not without we don't want to extract a lot of the phenols from the husks but is there some potential in the quality of this malt that's going to add sort of a different uh feeling in your mouth like on the on your cheeks is this going to be like a little bit drier um and and then it, so when i think about that realm in in terms of the mexican uh lager we were using flaked maize for a while and i felt that the flavor was where we wanted it but there was a character on the mouthfeel that was we were getting that I didn't like. It was this almost close to oxidized character. Mm. Um, and I think it was just a function of like, this is already gelatinized corn that's sitting in a bag in a warehouse. It's not, it was still fresh, but like there is still this kind of like staley quality to it. Um, so we started running experiments with getting just corn grits, uh, ungelatinized and doing the gelatinization in the brew house and the results are just unbelievable we're mm. getting a, a tighter body uh we had a little bigger body than i wanted and it's super fresh and a gentle corn flavor but just not over the top so that's how i kind of think about all the decoction versus are all the ways that we mash our our beers very cool let's talk about some of that malt because i think that's interesting to think about malt not just in terms of flavor but also you know, the kind of mouthfeel, but impression, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, tactile quality yeah. that the malt can give to, you know, a beer that's sitting in your mouth. Like, uh, um, talk to me about how you have selected malts for each of these beers, or I imagine there's probably some commonality in Pilsner malt between them just for sure. brewery efficiency's sake and whatnot. Yeah, yeah we we started off using exclusively Weyermann malt, uh, at my previous job, I was using best malts for all the German beers. What was cool about that brew pub is if we were going to make a specific regional style, we were trying to use the, those regional ingredients as much as we could. Sure, sure. Um, best malts is a good malt too, um, but I, I just liked Weyermann's Pilsner malt better. So we, we used that until, well, we continue to use it, but... We use it exclusively until it became hard to get because of COVID and the supply sure, chain sure. issues. And then it just continued to increase in price and continues to increase in price. Although I think it's finally hit, hit, hit its ceiling at least. Um, so we were forced a few times to, to experiment with some other malts. And one of my favorite malts that I've found domestically is um, a RAR uh, North Star Pills. Uh, super local. It's in Minnesota. Sure. Uh, it's cheap, and it's the closest thing I've found domestically to a continental European malt. So we uh, we had over the last year and a half have run experiments with certain percentage of that with Weyermann malt, um, and we we actually snuck in a batch of our Hellas of exclusively North Star pills. Nobody could tell the difference i could and not in a in a in a great way i, th I think it, it was still a delicious beer but 
the North Star tends to be a little huskier, mm. uh, more than what I'm looking for. So that's why we started kind of Blending doing blends. Two. And right now, I think we're at a 50-50 blend of uh, Vireman Pilsner and North Star for our original and our pills. Um, our Vienna continues to be exclusively uh, Vireman. And our Mexican lager is now exclusively North Star Pilsner. Hmm. So we're, we're complicating things in terms of uh, uh, procurement of raw materials. But we're going to continue to run different ratios. But uh, North Star is a little, cle- a little uh, lighter in color. And we thought that that was perfect for our Mexican lager. Interesting. Well, I still want to ask you about like how you describe the actual tactile sensation of those malts. Before we do that, brewers, are you looking for the best beer, mead, and cider recipes on the planet? Join the American Homebrewers Association to unlock the 2023 National Homebrew Competition medal-winning recipes. American Homebrewers Association members have access to nearly 1,400 trusted and tested recipes, plus a Zymergy Magazine subscription, exclusive discounts, live webinars, instruction videos, and more. Plus, sign up for a membership by December 31st, 2023, and select a free brewing book, a $25 value. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org slash cbbpod. Also, we've got some exciting news from GW Kent. They're expanding their product range to include many varieties of Ardoc cans, can handles, cleaning chemicals, and quality malts. Now, you can shop spare parts for the seller, ingredients for the brew house, and canning supplies for the packaging team all in one convenient location. GW Kent's new and improved website makes it easier than ever to quickly obtain the materials you need to keep your business brewing. Start saving today at gwkent.com. So, Tom, you talked about the tactile experience of malt. I want you to – let's dive into that a little bit because uh, I find that interesting and it's not something that a lot of folks talk about. As you were relating to these malts, like – you know, how do you describe some of the difference in the way that they you know feel and create texture, you know, to the beer itself? Yeah, I think one of the the clearest examples that we've come across in brewing our beers is the difference uh, between that North Star Pilsner and the the Vireman Pilsner malt, and I think a lot of it has to do with the the husk. Mm. Um, obviously, we're trying to not extract any of the husk material uh when we're producing the wort but i think always there it's inevitable you're there is some soluble uh phenols that are or tannins that are going to come through um to a, a varying degree and with the north star it was more obviously that so the way that that translates into the finished beer is you know when your mouth dries up you start to feel some saliva kind of collecting maybe on the on the on your cheeks or in the back of your mouth. And, um, some of that is a function of, you know, hoppiness, but also some of that is the tannins that are in, in the, the beer. And I felt that that created a drying effect almost to a fault. It was a little too excessive. Um, so we're looking at that. We're also looking at like, what is the quality of, Honey is a, a very typical characteristic in our beers from that we're getting from the Pilsner malt, but just that, as a flavor descriptor, as not, a, not actual honey, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> or not Thanks for malt. the clarification. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, as as a flavor descriptor, and I think the honey. I I always think about the honey and just the malt flavor in terms of like weight, not actually putting it on a scale, but like 
how does this weigh on my palate? And um, some of them are very kind of creamy. You get like this, this really light, airy, honey quality to it. So another malt that we've played around with is Vireman's Extra Pale Malt. And that has sort of a, a less deep honey character. It's very light. Like when I'm, I'm a big fan of honey in general. Um, and when I think of it, I think of like more on the, the lighter side of like the color side, of course, but also just how it weighs on your palate. It is like, is it super cloyingly sweet or is it this kind of gentle combination of cracker and honey? Um, whereas the Vireman malt, uh, Pils- regular Pilsner malt has more of a, in my opinion, more robust honey quality to it that we're extracting, especially in a decoction. Um, so then again, it's like weight, weight has a, a big influence on how we're making our beers. Is this something that's just going to slide right through the palate or is this going to stick around a little bit? Sure. Sure. Interesting. With the, your decoction process, um, you know, are there, are there any, is there any specific technique in terms of time, in terms of, is this a, a, a direct fire decoction vessel or there, or there any methods to the way that you actually decoct other than, uh, um, you know, there, I have been talking to folks uh, this weekend about, their direct fire decoction. And, uh, you know, there are some hardcore believers in that there's, um, you know, I've talked to lager brewers in the past who, you know, are, are using different timing for their decoctions in order to accomplish specific goals for you. You know, what, what does that decoction look like? Yeah, it depends on the style that we're making. Um, if we're doing any kind of Czech beer, we're usually trying to use under modified Czech malt. So we're doing a triple decoction on that. And the, that's really, to kind of break down some of the proteins that are usually going to be kind of more complex, more protein rich, but also just the sugars aren't going to be quite as accessible. So we're doing very cold initial rests with an element of decoction. Um, but with our, our standard beers, uh, it's not a direct fire. It's in our steam kettle. Um, I don't have a strong opinion, but I think one of the common misconceptions with like a, a direct fire is you don't want to scorch. Uh, scor- decoction doesn't mean scorching. Doesn't mean like you like when you have a. That's a, what the chains are for. Yeah, the chains exactly. they keep it from scorching. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so there's I could see there there could be some benefit to kind of maybe even the uneven heating of a of a, a direct fire. I don't know what I'd be curious to hear why. People uh, are more proponents of that, but but what we're trying to achieve isn't necessarily like caramelizing malt in the decoction. It's just exploding some of those sugar packets in right. there. And um, we, the only variance we have in the decoction, aside from the actual timing, which depends on single, double, or triple, is the amount of time we're actually decocting it. So. For our Hellas, it's shorter. Uh, our Vienna is the first decoction is a little bit longer than the second decoction. So the second decoction of the Vienna is the same time and same timing as the first and only decoction of our Hellas. And that's just because that's how it, that's what felt <laughs> was right. <laughs> All right, highly highly scientific. Yeah, <laughs> let's um, let's 
let's talk about in in terms of uh, you know Hellas and your standard pills. Uh, let's talk about hops, you know, and then this the boil process here. Sure. Um, you, you know, how did you mentioned Saz earlier, and uh, you also mentioned that your Hellas is definitely a little hoppier. Um, than a lot of Hellas, and that's your preference. And uh, you know, talk to me about how you select hops and how you uh, you know then time hops and what your ultimate goal of using hops in both the original lager and uh, you know pills becomes. Yeah, um, how I select hops with our beers is completely based on what I have used in the past at other breweries and or beers that I revere. So one example, like with our Pilsner, we use, it's a combination of German tradition and German tetanang. Um, and tetanang is probably one of my favorite hops. Why? Uh, because I think it's a great example of a balance between some kind of peppery notes, but also floral notes. And, uh, and it was also, it is also the hop used in my favorite Pilsner ever, which is the Tegernseer Pilsner. Uh, and it just so happened that I went to Domen's at the same time as one of the Tetanang or one of the uh, Tegernseer brewers. And uh, after a couple of beers, he shared with me what hops they use. <laughs> um, so that's that's how you get it out. Of yeah. Couple of beers. I mean, read the book by Andreas Krenmer about Vienna. It's basically like a spy novel about these Germans and, v- uh, and uh, Viennese uh, guys who saw that the Brits were making pale malt and they were like, mm, let's go see how they do that and bring it back. <laughs> um, but Today anyway. we have a culture of sharing and craft beer that's much more open and much yes. more quality focused for everybody. It's, a, it's yes. much less uh, cloak and dagger stuff. <laughs> exactly. Now we just put it out there on a podcast. And <laughs> <everyone> Precisely. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, so you've just shared uh, their taking the you know, secret with the uh, the entire brood. Well, I did. Congratulations! Yeah. Yep. So, right. I'm sure they'll go under as a result of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I love that hop anyway. So with that one, but you we, blend a little bit then with it. We do. We we only use the tradition for the bittering side, uh, and then the we do three editions. The second and final edition are just te- uh, tetaning. And that one, we actually do a Whirlpool edition. Oh, yeah. oh really? Yeah. Okay. Can you believe it? <laughs> That's also a n- naughty word in uh, traditional German brewing, right? <laughs> so why why then uh, use uh, do a Whirlpool edition rather than keeping it, you know, cooking all your hops? Yeah, that's a good question. A question I've been asking myself recently uh, and have been interested in exploring. Um, I That was definitely my American brewing influence on here because I worked for Lagunitas. I worked at a brew pub. We were doing American style. So that was more of initially just we want to have this beer be more aromatically hoppy than the others. And um, traditionally a good experience in my experience later editions is going to achieve that. Now whether we're getting the same kind of aroma that we would have gotten or could we achieve that aroma with maybe just still prior to whirlpool some additions possibly um something worth exploring i think i know that there's some some research about kind of the difference between what a hop how a hop expresses itself particularly noble hops on the hot side versus 
not so hot, but I, I still consider a whirlpool the way we're doing it a hot addition. We calculate the isomerization mm. as if it were a hot addition anyway. So I think we're still achieving. So you're that. adding those when they're you're not cooling down your whirlpool. Whirlpool then. Correct. It's okay. just spinning it to separate the trube, and we're adding it then. So yeah. it's still like almost boiling, right? Just under boiling. But the whole goal, of course, was to try to get more of the hop aroma. Sure, uh, sure. With the Hellas, we do our last addition is five minutes before boil, or uh, before boil end. Um, and when I say hoppy for our Hellas, I don't necessarily mean bitter. I just mean hop flavor. There's mm-hmm. noticeable hop flavor, and it's uh, Hellertal Middle Fruit exclusively. Uh, and that's basically a smash beer. Uh, sure, sure. Pilsner malt. Why, why middle fruit for, for Hellas? And uh, also, you know, I know you have calculated IBUs for it. Where where do those land? Even if they're even if they're not sensorially, yeah. uh, they don't align necessarily with some of those numbers. Uh, I just like I I like middle fruit to me that tastes just that's quintessential German. Uh, mm-hmm. having beers in Munich and across Germany, just middle fruit is such a beautiful, beautiful hop. So, um, and it has, it doesn't contain the same level of kind of pepperiness that a Tet would. And I didn't want a peppery Hellas. I wanted some kind of gentle floral with a little herbal character. Uh, and middle fruit was, was up for the task. Um, we're, our target IBU on that beer is 18. Okay. And on our pills, it's 32. But, you know, the IBU scale is what it is. Right. Uh, right. I wouldn't say Imperfect that. Perfect at best. Yeah. <laughs> that those two beers, like, are drastically different in terms of their bitterness. Very different quality, though. Quality. What's the, when you say that, how do you, how would you articulate a difference in quality of bitterness? The quality of the bitterness in the pills has much of what the original has initially, which is a hop flavor, um, hop aroma, but the pills deliberately has a sharper kind of bite on the end uh, versus the Hellas, which is supposed to be more tapered and doesn't linger as much. Sure, sure. Interesting. Well, it's funny to me, um, over the last couple of days, uh, the dovetail folks are also cool ship hopping. You know, they cool ship all of their beers. And so uh, in that same kind of way, they are adding a significant hop load. You know, theirs, though, actually drops down in temperature. We made the joke that they are cool ship pooling or cool pool. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to cool coin pool. a cool pool, K-O-E-L-P-O-O-L, cool pool. It's going to be like the, that. The, the newest uh, <laughs> brewing term that we've coined through this process. Um, you know, but, I, but I think it's interesting that there's also some commonality there that you are both trying to you know, push some more of that kind of, you know, aroma and, uh, you know, through this kind of process and that, uh, that, that is what, uh, is going to make these interesting. Yeah. Well, let's, I want to continue forward and talk about, uh, you know, again, since we're on some of the, the hop topic, let's talk about the way that you have then tapped back into, you know, some of your family's Polish roots and some of you, the, the Goldfinger history. Um, and you know, because you've also launched a series of Polish Pilsner where you get to explore Polish hops and the way that that those express in the beer. But talk about that for a little bit. Sure. 
it uh, our Polish Pills series, I guess, technically started for our first Lagerversary beer because that was our first technically Polish Pills. But um, we ended up using the first. We were the first ones to use the thialized uh, Lager strain. Ooh. And uh, well, Omega is right here in Chicago, so it right. make, makes sense. Makes right. sense. Yeah, and uh, I think some things have changed since that one. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, you know, it's so funny. Uh, it it really showed the spectrum of people's preference. Um, I'm typically, I, I don't typically like sulfur in the beer too much. I think our beers have the appropriate amount. Certain ones might have a little bit more than others but none of them are like that's not the first aroma that's really standing out for our beers um that polish pills that first one we did holy cow that was <laughs> that was a sulfur yeah. bomb and um you know we we let that lager a long time that didn't clean up uh the way we were hoping it would but it was an experiment and that's how we presented it to the to people and uh people we we had some people we still have some people saying it was the, their favorite Pilsner we've ever made. But um, that was our first time combining some Polish hops in a Pilsner setting, uh, albeit with the thialized yeast. So from that moment on, we knew we wanted to start a series where we're featuring different Polish hops because the goal uh, is to kind of show showcase hops from our, our ancestors' homeland and um, also shed light on the fact that there are really nice hops that are being uh, grown there and actually in many cases cheaper than German or Czech hops. Um, and many of them are very similar. So we started making a pills with the pills is basically a German pills base, um, but started adding combinations of hops, uh, different Polish hops. And so we're on our third one, which we're drinking right now, which is uh, the first one of our series where we're using m more of a Pol uh, new wave Polish hop um, that we've called Princely. And it, uh, it just translates to Princely from Polish. And the descriptors there are apricot and coconut. And depending on the day and what you've eaten before, you might be able to pick, on, pick up on some of that stuff. But uh, we've gotten a lot of excitement about these series. I know some people have been reserving a can of each of the ones so that they can do side-by-sides. And um, it's been fun. We we will continue to do it because there's a lot of combinations. We have a lot of different Polish hops and access to a lot of different Polish hops. And it also helps us determine which ones we want to use in some of our other beers because other beers have used that. Um, I'm sort of promoting Polish hops in a lot of our collaborations that we've done. I right. brought some. Sure, sure. Our Baltic Porter uses exclusively Polish hops. Uh, so it's just a fun way to do what I was kind of doing as a home brewer, which was just same base and let's just alter like one element of the beer. Um, you know, we've been uh, loving, you know, Polish uh, lagers, Polish uh, pilsners, uh, last year, one of our beers of the year was uh, Otherlands Halleduda Special um, Polish Pills. Again, like, you know, Ben and Carolina. Carolina is Polish and, uh, you know, it's a way to tap into that family history. Um, Live Oak, you know, it's fun to watch these kinds of, uh, you know, family expressions within, uh, you know, some of these, but making some phenomenal beers along the way. Um, yeah, Dusan and I, uh, 
we compare notes because yeah. he's he's made Pivko pills and he's made some other ones. Uh, he was the one who introduced me to the uh, the Polish distribute hop distributor um, here, and then the owner of Polish hops. And uh, because we are the first beer that Dusan and I made together was a Grozitskie, yeah, uh, which they do such a beautiful one. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, of course, I wanted to use Polish hops for it, and so we've continued to do that. But uh, get you in with his uh, malt supplier too. He sure did. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. We yeah. used his his malt supplier. He's actually the one that sends us our corn grits too for our oh, Mexicans. So. Cool, cool, awesome, awesome guy. Great brewery too. So we we have a lot of fun together. Absolutely. So, and that actually brings up the last thing I want to talk about on the podcast, which is uh, the American Zoigel project, which is something that uh, you actually launched uh, alongside Live Oak. Yes. Um, let's talk about that a little bit, and then maybe maybe you can start by you know like talking about the whole Zoigel tradition and what inspired you all to uh, to kind of follow down that road. Yeah, I think so. We've started a tradition where we brew a beer with live oak for our anniversary every year since we've been open um and it started with a grozitskie we did a pre-prohibition style lager uh for our second lagerversary and then we needed to come up with another style for for this past lagerversary and um i think it was probably dusan who was just like what about a zoigel beer and uh we kind of went back and forth about what that could be because I was also, it was right when I was very interested in cereal mashing and uh, gelatinizing in house and stuff. So kind of a combination of what I wanted to do with the beer and what we, how we wanted to interpret the Zoigel tradition resulted in what we're calling an American Zoigel. So uh, the, the Zoigel, the German Zoigel tradition dates back to the middle ages and like the Oberpfalz region uh, where basically um, a community would pool together funds and have a single kind of capacity to brew brew wort, and each household would take turns fermenting that wort. And when that that wort was ready to be consumed, uh, they would hang a brewer star, the Zoigel, outside of their door, and that would let the villagers know that they could go inside and enjoy uh, the fruits of their labor and. Um, they would literally like convert their living room into a place to just drink with with their their neighbors. So we love that idea. And uh, as far as the style goes, it's not necessarily like super polished BJCP style guidelines. So we took some creative license there, um, but we we use that as sort of a foundation. Um, we decided that color was probably to be around a coppery uh, or deep gold. But we also wanted to do, because I was interested in American ingredients and um, Live Oak does a lot of American st uh, styles, we don't do as much. Uh, so it kind of presented an opportunity to create this new American lager, which we called American Zoigel. So it's all American ingredients with the exception of a little bit of British crystal malt in it um, for for crystal a, malt. Can you believe it? All yeah. right. Yep. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Here we are. Uh, so, but it uses uh, corn grits and not even like Munich malt, just crystal malt. crystal malt. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Corn grits um, and then uh, 
American North Star Pilsner malt. Uh, and then we used cluster hops um, and whole cone Mount Hood hops. Well, all right. Yeah. So real classic American there. And we, um, we bagged those hops up. It was fun. Uh, first time we've used whole cone in the brewery. And the idea was to give it a very American flavor, um, but with still kind of not departing too far from what we envisioned a, a Zoigel would be. Um, it wasn't actually until after we brewed it that I I started to think like, well, there's an opportunity to create kind of a Zoigel-inspired uh, tradition here. So I had the idea of actually making a Zoigel star and hanging it out of our brewery for when we tapped it, which we did for our Lagerversary, and it stayed out there while we had the beer on tap, just letting all the villagers know the Zoigel's ready. And uh, I had my father-in-law actually build it, and uh, we ended up, me and the brew staff ended up signing the back of it, and we thought this would be cool if we just ship it to breweries around the country and they do the same thing we can send them the recipe and they can you know interpret it how they want but just stick to this kind of zoigel tradition pass it on so live oak did their version of it and they held they hung the zoigel uh above their brew house while that was on and our next one in line is urban chestnut so they're they'll be receiving the the zoigel next week i believe and uh, they'll be releasing that beer in december and they'll be hanging that star up and uh, they have a, a beer fest actually or a lager fest that they're doing and they're going to talk about the zoigel tradition because florian is a german right, obviously right. um but i created an instagram account american zoigel and we on our Goldfinger account and on the Zoigel account said, hey, if there's any breweries that want to be a part of this project and just keep passing this along like a chain letter, let let me know. And I got almost 70 requests from breweries <laughs> across, awesome. uh, I think across at this point, like 40 states. Wow. Wow. So, the Zoigel star will be making its rounds yeah. uh, over the coming years. Yeah, and and hopefully everybody's going to sign it, and I'd be I'd love to try their interpretations of it, and um, just kind of keep it keep it moving along. I, I like I like it for two reasons. One, we're kind of focusing on an American style lager. I think that isn't clearly defined right now, and there's some macro breweries that have claimed it um, for reason obvious reasons but i think we can reimagine what that is but also in a in a time in our industry where some things are in flux uh it's a healthy reminder that we're all kind of in this together still and people still get excited about little projects like this and collaborations like that I love it because this is an incredibly nerdy corner of the logger world. Uh, <laughs> you know, when Joe Stang and I were in uh, Prague, Czechia, and then also in Bamberg earlier this year, uh, we actually drove between, I, I rented a car in Prague and we drove between uh, Prague, Jatets, and, and Bamberg. And on our way back from Bamberg uh, that Sunday morning, you know, the, we stopped through the Oberfalls and uh, actually went to Knobloch first and then we, uh, we, popped out to a Vindeschischenbach and uh, you know, one of the, cause there are a couple of towns that still have these traditional uh, communally owned 
breweries that then each of the families takes turns brewing on, like you said, and then then it's their weekend to open. And so now the star is there, but I mean, they also put it on the internet as to who's open on any given weekend. And so sure. <laughs> you can actually figure it out, uh, you know, and, and plan a trip. Um, I was, it was, they're very different loggers. Like they are not anything like what you would think about in terms of uh, like Munich, uh, you know, the, the kind of Munich pale lagers, like there's, there's a fullness to them. They, they're definitely in, uh, on this spectrum. They are Franconian lagers. Um, but because the overfalls is also so close to Czechia, like, I mean, there's all of these interplay between these two, you know, like they're yeah. just not I, like um, you have some like stereotypical idea of a, you know, a Munich pale lager. Like this is not it at all. Like, Right, copper to like a deep golden, almost amber color, um, like fruitiness. You know, like they they're pulling out. They're using obviously they're using German hops, like but pulling this lime character out of the hops mm. they're using. There was there's just this big fullness to it. But what a cool tradition to just pop into that family. And I, I was in, amazed at just how well developed some of these family homes serving Zeugel. Like amazing. I mean. Were the, there were there other people there drinking? Well, we were there not as many. We were there pretty early, and okay. um, you know it was uh, you know, but but I mean a beautiful beautiful you know uh, home with like a full restaurant. I mean they full kitchen. Like I, I mean it would these families go all out. It's a it's a very cool tradition to be uh, to see in person. I was glad that we got to do that, but it's also cool to bring it back up. You know because. Yeah. Um, it's a small thing. It's, like I said, there's just a couple of cities now that uh, that still do that in that Oberfalz region. And, uh, you know, cool to highlight that just uh, as part of this broader beer and lager tradition. That uh, Anyway, let's talk, I want, let's talk a little bit more just about the beer itself. And, sure. you know, I love this idea of using American hops. You know, how did you, uh, you know, an American ingredients to create this? You know, yeah. Um, you know, talk about some of the kind of parameters and, and, you know, the envisioning how you saw like building this kind of base recipe was going to work and make a, cause it, you want it to be American. You want it to feel different than the, the German or Czech or Polish inspired lagers that you're also making. Yeah. Um, but it also has to like all, you know, hang in that same kind of, you know, your, your consumers here need to still be able to relate to it. Yeah. Uh, definitely seeking a different overall experience than what our traditional lagers were. That was kind of the first goal was this is going to be an American, an American interpretation of a Zoigel, but for all intents and purposes, just an American lager of, of a different inspiration. And, uh, since we don't do American lagers very often here, that was going to be easy to achieve just through American ingredients, but that, that wasn't enough for what we wanted to do. That's why we, um, we teamed up with Yakima Chief. They, they supplied the hops for us because we were, uh, I think Nico even said he like blew some dust off of some cluster <laughs> hops in the back of their cooler. Like these all are, right, right. these are, these are hops that nobody's using anymore really or very few people. They're not exciting. They're not, they're not sexy anymore. Um, which is why we liked it. Bring them back. Exactly. Which is why we liked it. Exactly. Cause the, the Zeugel tradition in Germany is, is, is old. It's, it's been going on for a long time. So, uh, it wouldn't have been fitting to get some really nice kind of hype, uh, tropical sure, fruity sure. American hops. Let's go, let's go. What, 
what American lager might have been or was at the time that those hops were really popular. So uh, we we just wanted to express that and express express sort of a cereal grain quality to it. And I think um, in hindsight, we we need to come up with a better method for using the whole cone because I think we ultimately wanted to extract a little bit more aroma from the Mount Hood, whole cone Mount Hood than we did. Uh, I think just as a function of we tied like mesh bags full of whole cone hops into the kettle and it did what it did. Um, it still turned out really nice, uh, but we were hoping it would be just a touch hoppier than it was. Live Oaks version, I think, did end up being a little bit hoppier. But kind of like how you were describing what Zeugel in Germany is, it's a, it's a different style. It's not what you would imagine. And the way we thought about the Zeugel project was, let's just kind of share the foundation. So if you're if you're one of the participating breweries, you get the box with the Zeugel, and inside it is the recipe that we used, our recommendations, a little history of the Zeugel tradition, and the goal of the project, and then a plea to pass that on to the next brewery. Um, so we just wanted to make it truly American. Um, and I think, I think using those ingredients helped achieve that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we've been talking for a little while now um, and it's almost time to wrap up, but I want to kind of pull back and, and think about big picture. You know, you got started in the midst of the pandemic in 2020. You were, able to finally realize this dream of, of your own lager brewery, you know, that pays homage to your family's brewing history. Um, you know, it's been a tough couple of years within, you know, brewing as a whole. Uh, it's hard to even look down the road and think about, you know, you know what's in the future. Um, uh, but try to, you know, envision for me if you can, like where, what do you hope, you know, uh, the Goldfinger becomes over the next three years, over the next five years, you know, where, where would you like to go with this and, uh, how do you see it? You know, a few years down the road. As far as uh, our vision, it's it's funny because I think about this from two different perspectives. I think about it as the responsible father of two and husband. Um, <laughs> let's keep a, a nice, sustainable business, which we're grateful that we have right now. Uh, but I also feel like um, as a brewer, I... I want more people to appreciate lager outside of what I feel most American beer consumers uh, do when they when they drink lager. Uh, so I think I, I feel like I have a responsibility to the industry to help promote what lager could actually be here, uh, not just the yellow, fizzy, tasteless stuff that is everywhere. But actually, something that can still just be just be more enjoyable um, and enjoyed in mass. Uh, so, I would love to continue to grow our brewery. I would love to be on on tap anywhere we can, where somebody is willing to drink a nice craft lager. Um, somebody who understands that uh, some there's some premium beers out there, and they're worthwhile. They're worth the money. They're worth the focus. Um, so we haven't really kind of aggressively gone after the Chicago market being that we're about 25 miles out, outside of the city. Um, we've just started having the ability to have more capacity to 
go on drafts at places because for a long time we were struggling to keep up with the tap room. Um, but we've added tanks and we're going to continue add, to add more because if there's an opportunity to have a lager beer on draft at a nice restaurant or some place where somebody just wants to drink a nice lager, I would love for our beer to be there and uh, hopefully the person enjoys it. Tom, I've enjoyed your uh, your approach to, to lager brewing uh, and these expressions that you make. Obviously, our blind judges have as well, and I appreciate you talking with us about it. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. HS Grove from BSG gives you the power to transform your next IPA into a stone fruit powerhouse. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends your next craft beverage pro brew as rotary can fillers in stock with a two to four week lead time. Omega stylized yeasts bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. Join the American Homebrewers Association to unlock the 2023 NHC medal winning recipes. And GW Kent now offers an even wider range of spare parts, canning supplies, and ingredients all in one place. If you've enjoyed this episode, uh, go to this uh, beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, uh, show us you know, that this content matters to you and become a subscriber to Craft Beer and Bring. And also, you know, get to read wonderful things like our best in beer issue where readers uh, out, well, the, the Downers Grove Chicago Metro uh, voters out in force supporting Goldfinger, Hop Butcher, Dovetail, and others, uh, you know, just voting. Uh, like, I, I, I really impressed to see just how passionate the Chicago crowd was nice. uh, in voting this year and also voted Chicago, the number one beer city in the North America. First time that's ever happened. Uh, congratulations, wow. Chicago voters nice. from getting out there. But anyway, uh, nonetheless, Tom, if people want to learn more about Goldfinger, uh, both in real life and out there on the internet, where, where do they find you all? So we're uh, right now we're across Chicagoland uh, cans and on draft, uh, at certain places, you can just reference our website. We have Find Our Beer page on there. Uh, we have our tap room at 513 Rogers Street in Downers Grove, uh, accessible by Metra, as you know. As I do. <laughs> and uh, Really, really easy trip out of, uh, out of Chicago Union Station. Yeah, Chicago Union Station. And if you come during the weekday, there's express trains that'll get you here in 20 minutes. Oh, so. See? You, well, you cannot do that. <laughs> right. Um, and then and I uh, didn't have to drive, which means I can uh, just have another uh, pills or lager or whatever. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then if you follow us, Instagram is where we put a lot of our focus uh, online. So at Goldfinger Beer, uh, that's where you'll see our, our journey through lager production. We like to share details about how we do it. So uh, hope you'll follow us. Fantastic. Can't wait to see after Urban Chestnut where the American Zoigel project lands next. Um, Tom Beckman, Goldfinger, thanks for talking with me on the podcast. Cheers. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.